In the city of Detroit, the name Toco is both respected and feared by anyone with the slightest knowledge of its underworld history. They are the survivors of a bloody prohibition war that conquered their enemies and established what is now known as the Detroit Partnership. They are a special breed. Not so far down the bloodline, a great-grandchild is born into the Toco clan, but he's known as a defado, a man whose lineage is not full Sicilian. Even worse, his Sicilian lineage comes from his mother, making him ineligible to ever make a real name for himself in the Toco regime. But this man is a Toko and will grow up strong in the ways of Cosa Nostra. He will serve his family and strike fear into the hearts of anyone that is crazy enough to challenge him. With fists like steel and a disposition to match, he will use his genetic fearlessness and a vicious cunning to pursue a life of crime that is hard to top. This is the legend of Alan Gunner Lindblom. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Time feuds of public enemies bring a rain of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. But Detroit's got to be the capital for cool ass yeah. names. Well, he's got a guy named Tony Baloney or something. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people nowadays name their child and picture how it's going to sound on TV with their child hitting a home run or running a football and uh, I think with Italians it's what kind of nickname is this kid gonna have when he's older because whether you're in the mob or not when you're Italian I think there's nicknames who is that guy I just had it in my head he did Italian animation he did hey good looking yeah it was uh Ralph Bakshi yeah Ralph Bakshi yeah he did animation on like the violent streets of the 50s and stuff you know what I mean like vulgar violent kind of cartoon stuff that's that's who they reminded me of it's like got a taste for Detroit violence and sink your teeth into Tony Baloney <laughs> that's what was bouncing in my head I had to get it out I love it so I sound good now I got my Yeti mic sound great our, our previous equipment failed sounds it's awesome it's been the kind of week I've had so Reno's I went up to Wisconsin <laughs> just a quick little trip <laughs> Just a quick little trip there and back, right? No problems. In a company car, a Mercedes uh, Sprinter, and it breaks down. Leaves me in what? Negative four degrees on the side of the road? At least. And uh, fortunately, I had AAA. AAA is happy to come within 45 to two hours, right? And with their new COVID laws, they tell me they, they can't give me a ride anywhere. So I'm like, you're going to leave me on the side of the road? And they're like, yeah, it's our new policy, basically, right? And I said, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? You know, and she's like, uh, you'll be responsible for your own transportation. I'm like, well, no shit. Right. So I'm trying to call like a taxi and stuff. And I said, hey, uh, AAA's coming. They want me to be here. I'm in a different state. You know, I want to get my car towed. And he's like, well, we're not, we can't just sit by the side of the road and wait for a tow truck. You know, it's, it's dangerous. And uh, that was the other thing. The lady asked me if I was in danger. I said, well, the car is completely dead and it's like negative four. And she's like, but you're on the shoulder? (laughs) For what it's worth. Yeah, I'm on the shoulder. I'm on the shoulder. You'll find me frozen dead on the shoulder. Yeah, that's where you'll find me. And so the taxi won't come either. He says, tell you what, once they tow your car, why don't you call me? So I'm back on the side of the road. So anyway, a policeman ends up taking me in the back of a squad car after a little pat down. And uh, long story short, (laughs) I end up at the Liberty Station Bar and Grill or whatever it's called in Madison, Wisconsin. I start firing down beers, have a good meal. It's a guy's place. If you're ever in Madison, broke down, you should go there. 
But uh, I start talking, as I tend to do, and I'm telling gangster stories and trying to entertain. But I met a, a guy, he ends up being a corrections officer. So he's got some pretty good stories of his own. And uh, I start telling him about the podcast and stuff. We had a good time. And so I told him I'd give him a shout out on the show. So Ree, why don't you come up with a plug for the shout out? Now for the Partners in Crime shout out. <laughs> and here it is. Brian Louie, it was good to meet you. He's a good guy, and uh, I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Partners in Crime, I'm your host, Bill Crooks, just an ordinary guy telling gangster stories, and I could never do it alone. I have the help of narrator extraordinaire Zach the Zip Griffith. Great to be back. Great to be back. And in season two, our new regular, the lovely and talented Anne-Marie Giuliano. Hi, good to be here, guys. Hi, Brian Lilly. And somewhere lurking in the shadows, surely doing his job, we have Joshua the intern. <laughs> oh, he's just glad to be part of the team. <laughs> so we're doing the second part of Gunner. I mean, I feel like P.T. Barnum when I keep telling people this, but I'm like, oh, it's just getting started. Because people were like, hey, man, that was a great podcast. I liked hearing him. That guy was entertaining. I'm like, oh, no, that's just the first one, which I thought we made pretty clear, but whatever. But what? I thought it was. Yeah, that's why we called it part one and said we'd be back with part two. But that's all right, man. I'm happy to walk people through it. <laughs> so this is part two. Uh, I'm excited. There's a lot of good stuff coming up. So let's get started. When we left off, Gunner was about 15, running around dealing drugs on a moped. It's in these escapades where Gunner finds himself on the receiving end of a bullet. So the first time I got shot, there was this girl, her name is Marla, and I was selling weed. I was like 15 years old. I just started selling weed and kind of had a thing for her. And so she asked me for a bag of weed. And I said, yeah, drive over there. Normally I wouldn't deliver a bag of weed to Mount Clemens. Mount Clemens was like freaking 10 miles from my house. I was 15 and a moped. But you know, I thought she was cute and liked her, so I shot over there on the moped and she had a bunch of family there. It was loud, a bunch of uncles and stuff there eyeballing me like, what's this freaking white boy doing in the hood? Now I'm bringing weed. And so I just didn't like the vibe. I didn't want to end up freaking dead. And this is back in the 80s, the late 80s, okay? In Mount Clemens, Michigan, it's a suburb little city outside of Detroit, about eight miles. It was known as like crack central. This was in the hood. And they were bad, man. They were on the block just slanging rocks day and night. Man, there'd be like 20 of them competing for, you know, they'd roll by, you'd have, they'd have it in their hands. And they'd be like, how many you want? Whatever. And it was bad. Well, I pulled up. I remember there was a bunch of guys out in the street. And some of them, like, arguing. That's another reason I wanted to get the hell out of there. But, you know, people argue. I didn't think it was no big deal. So I go in, give them all this bag of weed. I don't even charge her. Here you go. It's eight for weed, $20, whatever. And, um... I think I may even smoke one, and she rolled one and smoked it. And we were high, and I'm like, I get the hell out of here. So when I'm walking out, it's just as the sun's setting. So it's, you know, almost dark. These dudes in the street, I mean, it's just worst timing to manage. I come walking out, I just hear yelling, hey, man, I looked over, right as I look over, I see this dude pull a sawed-off shotgun up, and it just blasts this dude point-blank range. He's done. Everybody scatters, ten guys all go running. The dude just dropped to the ground, and like my moped was parked around the corner, and I just went ripping around the corner, running to get the hell out of there. More shots. Pop, 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 and I run, and as I'm running around the corner, I thought I tripped, man. The cables that hold up the telephone poles, they come down the like long cable. I thought I tripped on one. And just as I started running, a couple shots. 
So when I hit that, I thought I tripped over that telephone pole or on something. I mean, there was crap on the lawn, like kids' toys and crap. I mean, I just wasn't paying attention. I'm looking at the shooting, man. And bam, hit my leg and I tripped. And it was funny because if anyone would have saw it, they would have thought it was funny as hell because I was smooth as hell. Like I'm just running, bah, 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 bah. I hit this thing, trip, boom, hit the ground, do a perfect somersault, pop right back under my feet and keep running. I mean, it was like I planned it. It was crazy. Run around the corner. There was a corner house. So if you live in the corner house, my moped was looking in the driveway in the back. Went back here, bam, fire my moped up. I'm out of whatever. Okay, I just saw a dude get murdered. So I'm a little freaked out, but whatever. I'm not there. I wasn't sticking around to make a statement. I didn't care about none of that. I get all the way almost home, probably eight miles to my house, and my legs starting to burn. It's like hurt and throbbing. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm thinking, man, I smashed my leg on something, man, like on that, that cable. That's all I could think. That must have been what it was. I didn't see it. Pull up to the light. I'm a Sonic and Harper. And I remember looking at my leg and I like, pulled up my uh, tracksuit on. And I saw it was bleeding all over the place, like black bad. Didn't really look like a bullet wound. I didn't put two and two together. It just looked like, you know, someone took a pool stick and smashed me on my shin or something. Well, I ended up going home and then looking at it closer and I saw it. I had a bullet, I and mean, there's a bullet. You could actually you could feel it inside your leg. It was it only went in about that far. It like ricocheted off the bone and just lodged in. Obviously, it was a small gun, probably 25 or 22. So I ended up having to tell my dad. I'm just like, Dad, listen, man, I've been shot. You know, my dad didn't even like flinch. He didn't even flinch. He, he's like, All right, well, let's get let's go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. The doctor says, you're lucky, man. You missed the major artery and it didn't hit the bone direct. You could have shattered the bone. You could have been done. They just dug it out of there and that was it. I was sore for a week or two. That was it. Things follow their inevitable course and it isn't long before Gunner is serving his elders in an official capacity. First thing it was like I was about 18, 19 years old. Now my grandpa's eyes start going bad a little bit, right? But I'm, when I'm driving with him, because I go to the market with him a lot, you know, go downtown to the market, and I go driving on his little rounds. He always goes to see his goombadis here and his goombadis there. And I'm like, yeah, I ride with my grandpa. I like the guy. He's funny. Guy's cool. I love the guy. So I'll hang out with him. He asks me, you want to go to the market? I'm like, yeah, go to the market. You want to go see Nino? I said, yeah, let's go see Nino, whatever. Well, I'm noticing he's like blowing through lights and crap. I'm like, what the fuck, grandpa, man? It's a red light. Oh, so I started saying, Grandpa, listen, you're, you know, I'm not seeing so good. You know, I'm telling Grandma, and she's like, his eyes are going bad. I'm like, man, listen, oh, I'm like, Grandpa, when you need to go somewhere, let me know. I'll, I'll drive you, okay? You know what I'm saying? So next thing you know, he's saying, okay, let's go see Tony. Let's go see Paulie. Let's go see Tony Carrado or Tony Jack or whoever. Now, Tony Jack Jackaloni, by the way, his daughter married my mother's first cousin. And we all lived in the same, like, couple of block radius. They lived a few blocks away, my cousin Tony. Uh, Tony Bologna, Anthony Bologna. Uh, he married Nina Jackaloni, which is Tony's daughter. And so it kind of like solidified this, this tight connection with my family. So I'd be going to see these people like about 50% of the time. It was just like social calls. You know, my grandpa's a real social dude. He retired from his, you know, his career, his job, his business when he was like 50. So now he just liked to hang out with his old gumbadis, these old Sicilian talking dagos from the old country are the ones that are first generation. They all speak Sicilian. So he'd go see them and talk to them, whatever. And I would get to go meet them and hang around with them. They were at my house frequently, you know, like maybe once every week, once every two weeks. They'd stop by, they'd have coffee, a glass of vino, maybe for dinner, and they'd all talk and chat in Sicilian, which I could barely understand, but I'd pick stuff up. And then they, you know, they'd get to know me, and my Uncle Pete would be there, and he would kind of brag up on me, like Alonzo was up to this, or he's doing that, or he's whatever, or my Uncle Sal would do the same. So, they're getting to know me that way when I was a kid. What they knew was I was a troublemaker. 
but they knew what they were told by my uncles and my mother was that I was always fighting. I was always getting kicked out of school. And they're like, you know, hey, like, how's the Lanzo doing? And they're like, yeah, I got kicked out of school again. And they're like, ah, oh, what the, before this time? And they'd, be, they'd tell him, ah, oh, he's going to beat some guy up or he did this or he stole property. He's on probation. He's blah, blah, blah. And they look at me and I know they're thinking, because they're talking in Sicilian. They think I don't understand. And then I know he's looking at me thinking, eh, hey, this guy's going to be one of us someday. And so they knew I was a bad kid. While Lynn Bloom is well accustomed to the company of the Detroit mob elite, most of his young life experience has been largely social, like gatherings at his grandparents' house. But as he becomes more familiar with his grandfather's friends outside the house, he notices a shift in the tone of the conversation. And so I started driving my grandpa to these guys. Now when I'm outside of our house, it's okay. a little different, man. I'm, I'm treated a little differently. Like in, in the house, there's women there. And when the women are there, they don't talk business. You know, maybe in the back room, if they're sitting in the back room alone, they talk business. But with my mother and my grandmother, maybe my aunts there, they don't talk business. It's all social. Unless they're in the back room or in the basement because they had meetings like that in the basement. So now I go to their places of business. They had little car lots, bakeries, restaurants, you know, little bars, social clubs, whatever. And I go there and it's a different atmosphere. They're talking a lot more freely. They talk about street stuff. They're talking about the bookies and the Shylocks and the, what they got on the street in terms of books and what the bookies got out and how, you know the, the spreads and you know what's going to be the spread for this game and that game. You know, I'm here and I come with my grandpa. They be like, Alonzo, what's up? How you been, man? I heard you got in a freaking fight at Joe's place a couple weeks back, man. I'm like, yeah, freaking, you know, this happened. A guy disrespected me or one of my boys and I end up freaking in. And I start getting into the story and I'm like, yeah, this freaking guy, man, he tries to hit me with a freaking bottle. I end up you know, picking up a chair, smashing him before you know it. Me and my boys are stomping these guys. He trash the whole place, get thrown out. You know what I'm saying? I see the guy freaking an hour later, another place, man, I'm busting him up again, telling these stories. And they're like, they're laughing, but they're also eyes are real big and they're hanging on every word. And then they say, man, these, I remember the time that me and Tony did something just like that. And then they'll tell me their story. And I'm like, yeah, well, I did this too, man. This is this happened the other day too. Or this, that. And they tell me their story. And I tell, and it, they get all excited and animated and tell me these war stories from when they're kids, you know, when they're my age. And so they got to know me that way. And they'd smoke cigars. They'd be playing penny poker, smoking cigars, just hanging out. There'd always be two, three, four, five of them sitting in the back of some like used car lot or you know, some restaurant in the back and you know, eating, drinking and whatever, hanging out. So now when I get to be about 18, 19 years old, they start like saying, oh, he's definitely one of us. And I know my grandpa, I feel bad because my grandpa, he didn't want to see me go that route, but he also knew that was the only route I was ever going to go. And he knew that these guys were kind of admired or respected the kind of guy I was. He listened to me tell these stories and I was a little bit embarrassed, but he would look at me with maybe a, a, a touch of pride you know, a little bit. He didn't want that life for me, but he knew I was just going to go that way. So there's a little bit of pride in his eyes. There was more sadness in his eyes than pride, but I could tell he, he was like, you know, they like him because he's a lot like them, you know? So one day, one of them says, hey, you want to make a buck, man? She, you know, you're a tough guy. This guy owes me some money. You want to freaking get some money? I pinch you off a couple freaking dollars, man. You go find this fool, get his money. That's what I started doing. Started like, doing collections, finding uh, either bookies that owed up or, or guys that owed bookies or guys that were late on VIG, whatever it was, and finding them and making them pay. I was real good at that. But what it really started when Tony Jack calls me one day, he was at his sister's house. Tony Jack, what a name. 
Again, now, Tony Jack is Anthony Joseph Giacalone, serving as a capo in the Detroit Partnership. He came to public notice during the 1970s investigations into the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, as he was one of two mafia members, the other being Anthony Provenzano, that Hoffa had arranged to meet on the day he disappeared. In 1976, Giacalone was sentenced to 10 years in prison for tax evasion. He died of natural causes on February 23rd, 2001. And so... My cousin Tony was getting picked on in the neighborhood. They live in Gross Point, nice area. They're playing basketball, and I, I guess they had been picking on him for a while. You know, kind of. He wasn't real athletic. He wasn't a tough guy at all. And so they, one of them punched him in the face. Tony called me. Well, it was my aunt that called me, but Tony was there, and she's crying. She's like, "They beat up Tony. They beat up. He's bleeding. They beat up Tony." I see red. She, I know if she's calling me to tell me that then she wants me to handle it. So I jump on my Ninja, my crotch rocket. I'm way across town, other side of town at the beach with my boys, you know, hanging out at the beach. And I jump on my Ninja. I fly freaking warp speed, you know, 120 miles an hour down freaking I-94, zip up their house. I pull ripping up, you know, and I walk in and Tony's got an ice pack on his face and, and Tony Jack is there. And I'm like, who did this? And he tells me, he's like, hey, freaking guys on the corner, uh, kids I know from the neighborhood, man, they always, fucking with me man and one of them sucker punched me or whatever and i was like uh where are that and his mom said they're in the backyard of that corner house so i was like all right i got this and i looked at tony tony jack and he's just like he kind of nods he just looks at me and i look at him and he nods i was like okay so i go storming into this backyard there's about six eight guys back there and some of them were bigger than me oh, man i'm mad i'm ready to kill everybody back there i come storming up i had a, a tank top on it like a wife beater on and hat backwards and i come storming up i got shorts on I said, which one of you motherfuckers put your hands on my cousin? And they all stop and they look at me. And one of them, who was the biggest one of them, he goes, what's up, Al? Tony's your cousin? I said, yeah, mother effer. I said, Tony's my cousin. But when he, he said my name, I knew that I had him. Because when he said my name, he told me that he knows who I am and what I'm about. I didn't expect him to know me. I lived in another city. I lived, you know, another city over quite a ways away. But, you know, I'd been in a lot of trouble and done a lot of bad stuff. So, I mean, my name preceded me, I guess. So when I come walking up, he said, yo, hey, what's up, Tony's your cousin? I said, yeah, mother effer, you know me? And he said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, being Chetty's boy, right? I said, yeah, yeah, you must not even know me that good. You put your hands on my cousin, man, because if you knew me, you would never do that. They all said, no, nah, man, ain't like that, bro. Like, we were playing basketball. We know Tony, man. We grew up with the man. We just got things got heated, got a little pushing match. You know, they like, started pushing, you know, went through a punch, broke it up, man. We don't have problems with you. And I said, yeah, I know you don't. I said, so let me tell you something. If one of you put your hands on my cousin ever again, I'll come back and I'll smash every one of you bitches. You got that? And they are like, yeah, yeah, no problem, man. We don't have problems with you, Al. I said, yeah, all right. So I went back and told Tony Jr., little Tony, I said, listen, man, you're good. They won't bother you no more. And I looked at big Tony and I like said, they won't bother him no more. And Tony told him after that, he's like, because uh, I Tony Jack told me the story. Yeah, I don't know, like six months later, I said, hey, how they... How's, how's you know Anthony doing? They ain't messing with him, huh? He's like, nah, nah. He told me they said a freaking word to him ever since you did that. Like they all been real nice to him at school, and I'm like, well, good. Around 1991, Gunner is making a name for himself with brute violence, and he's quickly becoming a legend around the neighborhood and beyond. He has quickly endeared himself to the men who can make things happen in the Detroit underworld. Not long after that, Tony calls me, and this is how I really got in with him. It's like seven o'clock in the freaking morning. And I get a phone call, rings, wakes me up. Like, who the F is calling me at 7 o'clock in the morning? But when I answer the phone, it's Tony. I don't even know how he got my number. He must have got it from my uncle. And he says, listen, I got a problem. My Gumar, my girlfriend's freaking boyfriend, her ex, showed up at her house last night and, like, smacked her and a kid around. 
He's like, I need you to handle that. Can you handle that? And I was like, yeah, Tony, I can handle that. What's the deal, man? Give me the address. I'll handle it. He gives me the address. I jot it down. I hang up. I call up my, my workout partner, Dario. I'm like, yo, come on. We're going to do something. And he right away, he's like, do I need my piece, my pistol? I'm like, no, 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 you don't need that. And I told him, grab a pool stick or something, though. And he did. And so he comes over to my house. He drove. The house where the girl lived was like literally one mile from my house. So that's probably why he called me because I was lived right close to it. So I quietly knock on the back door. She lived in a duplex, like in the upstairs unit. And I went up these stairs and I knocked on the back door and she answers the door real quiet. I'm like, where is he? She's like, he's in the back, passed out. So I sneak in the back and long story short is I end up going in there and grabbing him by the hair and like yanking him awake out of bed. And he's like, who the F are you? I said, I'm the mother effer that comes when you put your hands on a woman, mother F. And then, and he starts trying to fight me, like fight back and swing. So I just start smashing him, just wham, wham. I got this big, huge nugget ring on. I purposely put this big nugget brass knuckle on, man. It was, it was gold, but it was like a brass knuckle, big fat nugget ring. And I just, bam, I just pound him about four good ones and split his face all apart. Then I, he just goes right down and I drag him out of the house by his hair bleeding and then drag him down those staircase which is like we're on the second floor drag him whole time drag him just down the staircase dario wells him with a freaking pool stick a couple times just for good measures and it cracks him in the ribs with the pool stick and i get him outside he's got this old van he gets in it looks in the mirror he's all covered in blood the whole time he's yelling who are you who are you and i'm saying man i'm the mother effing boogie man bro i'm the guy who shows up and you put your hands on a woman and a kid too he looks at his face and he goes, look what you did to my face, my leper. I said, yeah, next time you put your hands on a woman, you need a surgeon to put your face together. That's what I told him. Then he starts reaching under his seat. I like yank the door open and freaking grab his wrist and like fight with him. And I pull it out. He's got a crowbar. So I yank the crowbar out of his hand and freaking clinch him. I'm like, I'll smash your head in with this. And then that's it. That was that. So she went and told Tony what I did, which I imagine was went a lot like this. Whoever that guy was that you sent, he was for no games. He just came straight in there, dragged him out, punked him out, threw him out, and that was that. And I'd see her occasionally over the years. Just, you know, I remember I bumped into her at the adult ed school that I was going to, like a year or two later, and I brought a gas station and a grocery store. And she'd always come over and thank me, you know, thank, whisper in my ear, thank you for what you did. And I'd be like, yeah, no, it was the right thing. So Tony, after that, he just like, man, this guy, he's a tough guy. He gets stuff done. So now when I need muscle to maybe get something done or work security, I'm gonna call Alonzo, you know what I'm saying? And he'd get it okay with my grandpa. I'd like he'd say, Hey Pete, you know, you know, your grandson doing a little working security at a poker game, or you get, you know, casino night, or maybe um, you know, finding one of these freaking guys that don't owe me money. And Tony Tacoloni is the one who gave me the freaking nickname the, the Bloodhound. He also gave me the nickname Patsu Lapara. Patsu Lapara means crazy gunner. My real middle name is Gunner. And some of them would call me Gunner. And Patsu means crazy. Patsu Lapara means a crazy cannon or gunner. They, everybody thought I was so violent. I wasn't though. I really wasn't. I, I rarely had to use violence. I was just, had a reputation for violence. So when I showed up and talked calmly and said, listen, bro, you owe money. I said, you gotta pay. And they'd be like, well, I got this going. I, this, I, I don't care about your excuses, bro. What do you got? You got a car that's paid for, a boat, a jet ski, a snowmobile, a coin collection. What do you got? We, whatever you got right now, we're going to get that money. If you got a boat, we'll take it to the pawn shop. We'll sell it or whatever and get this cash. Because the next guy who shows up ain't going to be nice like me. All right. You won't see him coming. They want their freaking money. You can't gamble with these guys and not pay. So this is the decision you want to make. Tell me F off. Well, only one guy over told me to F off. And he had a bunch of bikers with him. 
and told me F, F off, I ain't paying you. So I went out to my car, grabbed the baseball bat, came back in and smashed four of them. Three of them real good. One was able to dive under a table. But I mean, and busted them all up with baseball bat and said, okay, because I said, are you sure this is what you want? You sure you're going to tell me to F off? And the guy, the biker guy, is like, yeah, he ain't paying you or anyone else. F you, F you. And they all like swelled up and got around me. And I looked at the guy who owed the money. It was 3000 bucks. It wasn't even that much money. That's the route you want to go, man. Are you sure that's the decision you want to make? And he shrugged. I was like, okay, man. I'll see you. Walked straight outside, got a bat, came charging back in, and smashed everybody. So I didn't have to do a ton of violence, but I mean, just because of stories like that, they would have heard of it. So when I showed up, I mean, it just struck fear in these guys, and they'd usually just pay or find a way to pay or get the money. Lynn Bloom is getting a first-class education on the ins and outs of small-time rackets. Then Tony says, listen, I need you to work security at this game. It's in the basement of this strip club. Go there, you know, yada, yada, yada. You make a couple hundred bucks, easy. Basically, when people come in, you, you shake them down, see if they got a gun on them. If they do, you take it, get the money, cash it in for chips, put it in a safe. You know, it's going to be like a stripper and a shot girl there. Um, you know, the dealer, you, maybe one other guy works security. They're going to play all light to one winner. You know, at the end of the night, freaking Nino will cash you out and a couple hundred bucks, blah, blah, blah. Like, hey, it's money. And it really wasn't very fun. You make 200 bucks for freaking eight hours, but it was cash. But as Gunner gets the hang of the underworld social life, he begins to get a little too comfortable. He's known to occasionally take an unwise liberty with his bosses. Funny how that works, because he asked me to work security at a game for a guy named Nino, little freaking daggle dude who never liked me because I boned his girl. I know I, he don't know I boned his girl. I basically gave her my number while he was at the club I was bouncing at, and she didn't have a purse. She's this chick who had a, nothing but a red dress on, a super beautiful chick. And I'm like, what are you doing with this freaking old guy, man? He's five foot five and he's like 30, man. You're 19 years old, beautiful. I'm like, here's my number, call me. Well, he saw that number in her hand and he grabbed it. He was like, what's in the hand here? And she saw, he opened it up and saw it. So after that, he never really liked me. In full disclosure, there's a little more to the story. He didn't just uh, bone his girlfriend. He boned her at Nino's place for a weekend while walking around in Nino's robe and uh, presumably eating Nino's food. So uh, there's that. And so I go to these games. I had never seen like a professional poker game before. I go down there and I did what he told me to do. And I'd watch them. And the guys all night would be, you know, smoking cigars and having drinks. And there would be free booze. Sometimes they'd have party favors like Coke. And they like anyone want a line, they put a plate of freaking Coke out, man. These guys would snort a line. They would drink expensive whiskeys and liquors. And the dealer would be cutting every pot. Every pot they cut X out, whatever it was, 10%, I think. And so I just sit there in a chair by the door, making sure nobody came in or came out, you know, and and, no, and sometimes guys would get in arguments over a certain hand or, you know, they didn't like a certain call, whatever it was, or they'd just be dicks to each other because they're losing. And these guys, dude, there was there were some high-end players. I, I hosted games with professional NBA players. I won't say their name, but there's also the pastor. There was, um, you know, real high-end businessmen, I mean, the guys you see on TV and the commercials and stuff, there was a, a news anchor, like a local news guy. Freaking, I, I hosted a game. Was that a, mind-blowing, the people who would come there, man. Like, And then high-end, like high rollers. But sometimes they would be just like street thugs, like some black dude with a big, big gold chain and walk in with 10 grand cash, want to play. And I'd take his money like everybody else. Seeing the high profits to be made by hosting the games, Gunner decides to use his experience and social connections make his move into some real money well what i would do was i'd memorize these guys 
I was bouncing at a club called Brownies, which is a real high-end place. My grandpa got me the job. When I got out of jail, I got busted for selling steroids when I was like 17, 18 years old. I ended up going to jail for six months. Long story. My grandpa actually bribed the judge, paid a judge 10 Gs to give me six months work release. I had two hand-to-hand sales. But I got kicked out of work release because some, some black dude reached over the, the table and grabbed my cookie off my tray. So I just jumped over the table and smashed his face in and started fighting. And I ended up... They kicked me out of work, so I had to go in the jail. And then my girlfriend paid a lawyer to go in front of the judge to get a time cut, and they got me a time cut. So I ended up doing like three months and like 20 days or something. And when I got out, I was living with my grandparents, and my grandfather got me one job working at a marble place, and I worked there, my busted my ass for freaking two weeks when I had to go paid. I mean, I busted my ass for this Greek dude who's my neighbor, Greek neighbor, busted my ass. The guy hands me freaking $200. After I think whatever it was, it worked out to be five bucks an hour cash. I went back. I told my grandpa. I said, "This mother effing Greek paid me five bucks an hour. I freaking two hundred dollars." He says, "That's disrespectful to me." He said, "Don't talk to me freaking no more. We ain't friends." And he didn't. They were freaking never talked to him again. Lived right next to us. So then he got me a job. He talked to this guy Al, who owned this marina and uh, who has a club called Brownies, and the place is real high end. It's right on the border of like Gross Point, St. Clair Shores. High Roller Central, and everybody, there's Lambos and Benzes everywhere in the parking lot. I mean, it's right on the water. You could pull up and valet park your boat, and this big wraparound deck wraps around this marina, and people pull up high rollers in their freaking million-dollar boats, and they, and you throw them the rope, and the valet parkers park your boat. The nicer the boat, the closer you are up on the deck because people want to be shown off. So and you tip them, you know, 50 bucks for, you know, parking the boat or whatever. So I'm bouncing at this place. My grandpa knows the owner, this guy named Al, old dude named Al. Creepy, weird old dude. Anyways, I get a job there, and they basically make me head bouncer. So now all my little cousins, all my little mobbed-up cousins who live in Gross Point right down the road, they're coming in every week because I'll let them in. You know what I mean? They're all like 17, 18 years old. The average age in this club is about, I don't know, 28, 30 years old. Tons of hot, older, stack-chasing chicks. There's so many older women, like beautiful older women there to find a, like a high roller. And my little cousins would come in. Oh, like little G's. Sometimes they show up in a limo. It would be funny. A limo would pull up. They all get out. There's like eight of them. They walk up and give me a kiss, which the Sicilians kiss. And I know that's weird for some people but like you would kiss them right on the side of the mouth and so i'm this bouncer and i'm only like 19 20 years old i think i was 20 and these kids would come in here and they'd walk up to me and give me a hug give me a kiss and all these people in this place would be looking at me like the frick is this bouncer man he's freaking acting like he's the freaking godfather all these kids all italian kids they all obviously little mob kids but anyways all the high rollers hung out there and i got to know them i got to know the who's who and including like that dude nino and that's when Tony says, I-, I want you to work a game. It's Nino's game. You know Nino. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I thought it was Nino's game, I thought it's Nino's game. I don't give a shit about Nino. I already boned the guy's girl. You know what I'm saying? I don't care about this freaking guy. So uh, the whole weekend while he was in Florida or something. So I know the guy had to have heard something. He probably hates my guts. Now I start scabbing his poker players. So I'd see these guys that were from his games, and I'm like, I know how it works now. I understand where the money comes from. And I'd say to him, I'm like, hey, you interested in playing a game, man? You know, I'm trying to put a game together, man. I'm only going to cut every third pot, so we've got bigger payouts. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, give me a call. Let me know when the game is. You know, I might play. I might buy in. How much? I'm like, yeah, I mean, we might start off with like a 2000 buy-in, you know? Like Nino's game was like ten grand. you know? He's like, I'll do a $2,000 game. Oblivious to the consequences of moving into Nino's territory, he sets about making his mark in the gambling circuit. 
So now when I get four or five guys together, I'd call them and be like, yo, let's have this game. So I do it at my at a homeboy's house who had a real nice basement. A beautiful finished basement with this big jet 500 gallon aquarium. He had a real pretty girlfriend who was a she was a waitress at a strip club. So I mean, she looked like a stripper. You know, she would serve drinks and cigars and crap all night and look pretty. And so that's basically how I did it. I would get these guys. They'd come and they play my games. And I'd cut every third pot. You know, so at the end of the night, you know, if a two thousand dollar a game buy-in, five players, six maybe, you I might cut, I don't know, fifteen hundred bucks. And then I might give the dude whose house it was and his girl 500 bucks and then recover the alcohol or whatever. But I mean, I make a thousand bucks. Now, a $5,000 game I buy in, I might make four or five Gs. And so I started doing this and then doing it more and more. And next thing you know, Nino calls some of his players. He's like, yo, why aren't you playing my game? He's like, yo, I'm playing freaking Alonzo's game. Alonzo, I didn't even know he had a freaking game. So now Nino calls Tony and says, yo, you know, your freaking nephew is scabbing my players, our players, because I didn't know that was Tony's game. Nino was just running it, you know, getting a piece. Tony and Nino were splitting it. So now I get called in and I get a call to my grandpa. He says, hey, listen, come by the house. I don't think it's anything. I'm like, I don't know. It's, what does he want to talk? He goes, my grandpa says, Tony said, stop scabbing his players. He ain't happy. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, no big deal, man. I had to make a buck. If you think that this warning would be enough to halt the impromptu poker games, well, you'd be wrong. I do it again, month later. This time, Tony was there. And right away, he's like, in the basement. I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. If it's in the basement, I know I was in trouble because that's where they went to talk business. So I go in the basement, and he says, how much you cut out of that game? He don't see nothing else. He's sitting there like this. How much you cut out of that game? I'm like, I don't know, five? He's like, all right, you owe me six. I'll wait. Go get it now. I looked at my grandpa. I'm like, you serious? And my grandpa nods. I was like, frick, serious man, six? I'm not even, I don't even have it. I'm like, yeah, well, you'll get it. Hurry up. I'll, be, I'll wait. So now I got to run out of here. I got a couple thousand bucks at home. I had to go to my boy, Pat, Pat O'Brien, who owns a bar. And I tell him, I was like, listen, man, I need to borrow for a couple thousand bucks right now. I mean, no questions. Don't even ask. Just, just pull it out the safe, bro. I need it. And he did. He didn't ask me nothing. He just, frick, we walked right in the basement. He opened it up, gave me the money, said, all right, here you go. And he's a good dude like that. Seems that Gunner has not quite learned his lesson. So then the last time that I did it, and I get a call, my grandpa says, no, I'll talk to you, it's important, come over, and we go in the basement, I know I'm in trouble. And he's like, Tony says, stop, stop what you're doing, man, stop it. He's like, it's not a joke, these guys take it serious, this is this is his game, these are his players, this is his money, it's taking offense to it now, man, you're, you're disrespecting him. You can't disrespect somebody like Tony, you don't do that, you know, he takes it personal. Now you're gonna have a big problem, and I can't protect you if you keep doing this. I said, all right, so I stopped. And that was that was a funny thing. And then Tony didn't talk to me for like a year. And then the next time Tony talked to me, which was funny, because I was in the office of Tony Zarelli, the underboss, and I got called in by him because I had extorted some, I think it was a Polish business owner in, in Hamtramck, which is kind of this tiny little enclave inside of little Polish area and I, I went in there and I did the old overlay for the underplay you know I sent a guy in there to freaking trash the place and, and sent a guy in the trash place again then I walked in one day when the guy walked in the trash place I freaking stuck up for him pulled the gun out and told the guy freaking hey man back up man this guy this, this old Polish dude I said he's a friend of mine you want to come back here and trash play? I'll freaking blow your head off you got that and then I told the old Polish guy what's going on with this he said man the guy keeps coming in here you know threatening me and trashing my place and freaking grab stuff walks right out blah 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 
He's like, I can't run a business like that. I said, I'll tell you something, man. Give me 500 bucks a week, and I'll make sure that guy and nobody else comes in here and bothers you. You got that? 500 bucks. It's a small price to pay. I'll keep freaking riffraff like that out of here. And he's like, you think you can? I'm like, you just saw me, didn't you? And so he started paying me 500 bucks. But what I didn't know was that Polish guy was already paying X amount, I don't know how much, protection to a wise guy who was under Tony's rally. So they got video footage of me. And so they looked at the video footage, and they're like, freaking, they recognize this is freaking Alonzo. He's just Pete Toko's grandson. You got to be kidding me, man. These freaking guys in there. So they call me in. My grandpa says, Tony C wants to see you. Go to his place. And I'm like, all right. Maybe they wanted food because it was a restaurant. And I ended up going in there. When I walk in there, Tony Z's in there. Big fat dude who's his bodyguard. I can't remember his name. Tony Jack's in there. And one other person, man. I can't remember the life of me. If it was, I, I almost want to say it was Frank Bomarito, but I can't say for sure. But anyways... I walk in there, and I remember I didn't know I was in trouble. I mean, this is how dumb I was. I walked in there, and I see the fat dude by the door, and I say, uh, I said, man, Tony, is this the only thing stopping me from coming here to get you? This guy? And freaking right when I say that, the fat dude shuts the door, and Tony hits a button on the bottom of his desk that latches it. It's like you hear the latch shut. And I just thought to myself, well, geez, that freaking that fell flat, that joke. You know, it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. So anyways... He had said, what's this business with you and a freaking Polak in Hamtramck? I go, what do you mean what's this business with Polak? He's like, the guy, the Polak, you're squeezing this freaking Polak. He's already paying us, stupid. He's already paying us. And I'm like, how, how am I supposed to know that? How do I know? He's like, well, you're supposed to ask before you do things like this. You're going to go freaking shake a guy down, ask your Uncle Pete. Yeah, what's the deal with this guy? And if you don't know, he's going to ask me or somebody else. Ask, somebody will find out. You just don't walk in there like some renegade and shoot the move. You know, like you're going to freaking, you, need to do, you can't just do this. I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't know, man. I got to eat, too. That's what I said. You know, why well, I can't eat? He says, listen, he's a good tough guy. I know that, man. I know. I've heard. But you know something? You can't always win with these. Then he makes, holds up his fists, you know, two fists. He's like, you can't beat everyone with these, he said. One of these days, someone's going to come with one of these. And he makes this, the sign of the gun with his finger. And I kind of took offense to it. Like, man, what the F does that mean? Well, you can't always win with these. Someday someone's going to come with these. And I said, yeah, well, if they come with that, Tony, they better be a good shot. I go, because I got guns too, and I'm a good shot. And what I'm going to do is get them, then I'm going to come for the guy that sent them. And when I said it, it came out very, like, aimed at him, which didn't mean. I immediately, like, wish I could have recanted, because you don't say it to somebody like that. And I looked at Tony. Tony, Tony, look, he knew, man. He knew how scared I was at that moment. And he just kind of reels back, starts laughing, and goes, ah, Patsulapara, what are we going to do with you, man? You freaking, you know what I'm saying? You're hard-headed, man. And he's like, listen. Next time you do this, you know, ask one of us, you know, ask your Uncle Pete, ask somebody before you do this, you know, get yourself in trouble. All right. Calm down a little bit. Tony was right. You can't beat everybody. Somebody comes up with a gun and it's be over. I said, yeah, yeah. And we joked around for a minute and freaking then I left and that was the end of it. But then Tony was cool with me again after that. And that's the reason I, he was cool with me is because I was crazy like he was. I was the guy that he was when he was 22, 25 years old, out there renegade cracking heads running the streets you know making moves just you know everybody was scared of he was uh william toko's driver towards the end you know he was young william toko he learned from the best he learned from the best and he was mentored by the best he was incredibly smart so anyway so that's kind of how i got in with them and, and it was on and off until his death towards the end maybe the last couple of years i didn't really even see him too often and he he just was getting in ill health and really kind of calmed down but he had intermediaries kind of running his his operations and 
and I was kind of more, even more renegade and rogue than ever, so. Throughout all these life changes, however, one thing remains constant. Al can't pass up a good fight. So here I am now bouncing at this club. I mean, I had a lot of crazy stuff when I was in there, man, but one of the craziest things was happening a night I wasn't even working. I was off this night. I was kind of bummed out because my best friend, Billy, who came home from college, had been with me the whole summer, right? At my apartment in Mount Clements, which is a little city just north of Detroit. But anyways, Billy had gone back to school. I was kind of bummed out about it. We had met this girl earlier in the summer. Me and Billy were both wearing like a suit vest with no shirt underneath. Cause that was in style back then. I know it's posery. If you think, picture a guy in a suit vest right now with no shirt underneath, you think, oh, look at this freaking poser, whatever. But at the time, you know, that was kind of what the freaking muscle heads did. So we wear a suit vest, no shirt, boom, boom. So me and Billy are at this club that I work at, but I like, you know, I didn't work every night. And there's this girl there and we, Billy just got home from school. So we'd only been to the club a couple of times. And there's this girl there and I walk up to her. I don't know why I say this. It's out of the blue. I say this to this random girl. I'm like, what do you think when you look at us, me and him? And now keep in mind, Billy was a model for Kelvin Klein. He, he later would model for Kelvin Klein and make a ton of freaking money doing it. He was a super handsome dude, tall and ripped up like Jean-Claude Van Damme, but just better looking just ripped up and i said what do you think you, when you look at the two of us like you know what comes to mind and she says menage a trois and i don't even know what that means that's how naive i was so i'm like oh that's and then billy's like hell yeah and then she walks away and i'm like what's a menage a trois he's like bro you don't know what a menage a trois i said no what is it he's like two on one i'm like oh damn okay so you know let's get so we ended up leaving the bar that night with that chick going back to my apartment in mount clemens and having her in the bedroom and I bowed out respectfully I had more respect for myself I guess I just I did have a girlfriend and at the time I didn't really think that it would matter that much but um I didn't probably wouldn't even thought of that but it was a fact that I just no one girl two guys it just wasn't my thing man so I said Billy go for it and he smashes it and uh so we she was a traveling nurse we ended up hanging out with her all summer so she kind of Drove us around, took us shopping, yada, yada, yada. She was in town for like nine months to fill a position as a nurse at some hospital, some local hospital. So he hooked up with her and, and kind of smashed her all summer. Well, fast forward towards the end of summer, and a lot of stuff has gone down. And I had this kid, he's an old friend of mine, we'll call him E. I had been cool with him, and then not, he disrespect me really bad. I ended up freaking deciding I was going to beat his ass. So I slapped him around four or five times. But I liked him, so I couldn't bring myself to like really beat his ass. I just slap him around in front of people just to humiliate him. At some point, he pulls a gun on me. He don't really pull the gun out. He pointed at me. He just pulls it out of his like waist and stands there. And I go after him. I'm like I'm like, man, bitch, you coward! You gonna pull the freaking trigger, you punk ass? I said, pull the trigger, aim that at me. I said, yeah, aim that. I'm yelling at the dude. It's a big party. I just basically I went ballistic at a party. When I see him, I, he ends up going walking up to me, leaning over, going, "What's up, punk?" On a funny drunk tip, I said, "Man, I ain't no punk. Don't ever call me a punk." He's like, "Oh man, you punk like the rest of us." Yada yada yada. I said, "No, I'm not." And I jumped up and I freaking punched him in the mouth and then slapped him. Anyways, I punched him in the mouth, pulled the gun, yada yada. So now I'm in brownies one night, and it's the night that Billy went to home to school. So I'm with this traveling nurse chick, which was kind of his girlfriend all summer, Menage a Trois chick, and she drives me there. You know, I'm just not in a good mood. Because my best friend just went home from college, you know, and I'm kind of here on my own, so I'm bummed out. I got this chick here with me, but, you know, she's really working to my advantage at the, at the time, you know, I'm just hanging out at my, the club I work at with a chick. Anyways, when we first get there, I'm, you know, we're sitting on the deck. So I'm sitting there, and I look over, I see 
the dude E and his friends. There's like four of them at a table, five of them maybe. And one of them, and one of the guys with them is my boy Jay, who's my boy. He's like my paisan, my best friend. And Jay actually worked there with me too. Which kind of Jay knew this was going to happen. Because as soon as he saw them, he was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Because Jay knew what I was going to do to E. So I'm sitting there talking to this girl. And I remember saying, you want to see me beat somebody's ass? And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm about to beat somebody's ass. Watch this. She's like, no, nah, don't do it. Don't get kicked out. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, now save your breath. So I go over to my cousin, Joe. I say, Joe, listen, I'm about to beat this kid. Because I got Joe a job bouncing there, by the way. I got him a job working there. So he, he was working the night I wasn't working. And he was working the deck. And I walk over to him and I say, hey, listen, Joe, I'm about to smash this kid. And he's like, hey, oh, come on, don't do it, man. I'm working, man. I got to break it up and blah, blah, blah. I said, save your breath, bro. It ain't worth trying to talk me out of it. I'm doing it. So just be ready. And he looks me in the eye and he goes, all right, man, be fast about it, though. And I said, bro, you got me. I'll be quick. Don't worry. Smash and go. So he's like, all right, bet. So he's like, I'll give you like 10 seconds to, to wail on him. All right. And like, whatever, just let me, let me finish the job. He was like, all right. So I walk right over to the dude. There's five dudes at a table. It's um, on a deck overlooking this lagoon. There's probably about 25 tables on this deck. Maybe, I don't know, 150 people out there. And it's daylight still. It's not even dark yet. So it's early in the night. You know, and it's probably 8, 9 o'clock or something. And I walk straight over to his table and lean over. I, I picked the wrong side. I should have picked the other side of him, so I would hit him with a right. But for whatever reason, I picked him on the left side of him, which means if I wanted to hit him, I had to hit him from the, from the with my left, which I'm not that great with. But he's lucky. Had I hit him with my right, I probably would have broke his jaw and knocked him out, and then all the fun would have ended. So I walk over, and I said, what's up, tough guy? And he goes, oh, what's up, hell? And all these guys, I look around the table, I go, what's up, fellas, what's up? Like, yeah, what's up? And I looked at the E kid. I'm right next to him, looking over him, like, over his shoulder. I go, you think you're a tough guy, don't you? You know what you did? And then you t- that takes a tough guy to do what you did. That's what I said. In order to do what you did, disrespect me, you got to be a tough guy. I want to find out. Are you a tough guy? And he's like, what, hell, I don't, I don't want to fight you. And that's all he got out. It's just, I don't want to fight you. Boom, I freaking hit him with a left. Jaw jack him. Knocks him out of his seat onto the freaking deck but the kid had, had the will to survive because he like jumped right up onto his feet and started like walking around the table to the other side to get put the table between him and me and i start walking around like come here bro tough guy you're a tough guy i know you're a tough guy man what you did only a tough guy would do that man come on man let me see how tough you are come here come here tough guy and i'm walking on the table and he's going one way and i'm going the other way trying to get away eventually i get sick of this and now the whole deck is watching the whole club out there, 150 people all stop drinking and partying and just like, what the frick, this freaking guy. I took my vest off, so now I have no shirt on. And I'm a pretty big kid. I'm like 190 ripped up, shredded up kid. So I'm like, man, what's up, tough guy? See how tough you are? I'm yelling this and, and everyone at the table is just kind of sitting there. Finally, I said, hell with this. I grab the freaking table and just fling it. I'm like, what's up, tough guy? Let's see how tough you are. All this bottles and crap and liquor just goes flying, crashing across the deck. The table's got an umbrella on it, right? So when I grab it and throw it, you know, the umbrella and table and all that goes crashing, smashes into this table next to us with a bunch of girls. Crash! Bang! There's a couple of those little stool tables there, like the little round tables with a stool. A couple there right there. And everything all together just crashed in all these people and knocked their drinks down and broke their bottles. And right when I start to go at him, limbo! I look, and there's two freaking cops sitting right there on the outside of the deck. But they ain't staying for long. At that time, when they're limping, I looked at them. Now, I know I got warrants. I know I'm wanted. I said, 
I'm out of here. So as soon as I went limo, I just, boom, I took off running. I ran inside Brownies, the restaurant, and they have a bandstand, and there was a live band playing. I go dashing across this bandstand. Joe, my cousin Joe, he's running behind me. I don't know why he's running. He's just kind of running to help me, I guess. And the cops are back behind him another 10 steps or whatever because the cops did jump the deck and gave chase. So I bust into the kitchen, the back kitchen. Now, I know this place like the back of my hand, but I've never really explored the kitchen. You know, I mean, no reason to. Kind of went in there and be like, yo, can you make this for my dinner? But that's it. So I come busting into the back kitchen, big swinging doors. There's tons of people like bus boys and waiters and people cooking and prep cooks. And there's like 12 people in there moving around. I open up and I'm like, Back door. Where's the back door? And they freaking, the, like I could tell, the one guy who was the boss, the main dude, he looks, he points down the hallway, he says, back there. So I run down the back, and I'll, Joe busts him with me, so he's with me. I run to the back door and grab it, and it's freaking locked. It's locked. It don't open. Mother effort. So I'm like, now I look at Joe, I'm like, where's the other freaking door? And he's like, this way. So I freaking go running down this hall again. And when I get to basically the kitchen door where I first came in, the cops come busting in. Boom! And they freaking, they kind of getting like a football tackle, you know, position. Like, what's going on, Lim Bloom, man? What's going on? You everything all right, man? You got warrants, blah, blah, blah. Why are you running, blah, blah? And I knew I couldn't get away. They knew who I was. I knew I had a warrant for for something that was pretty minor. Um, I knew how much the bond was. It was like 500 bucks. So I literally, I got in like this position where I was going to try to bust through them and run. I literally freeze up and I went, all right, fellas, let's go. I got warrants. Let's get, make it quick. That's what I said. You're good. You're not going to have a hard time? I said, no, nah, I'm not going to give you a hard time. You didn't even have to cuff me. Let's go. So they did cuff me. And they bring me back to the cop car, which is now parked along the deck. And let me just go back, iterate why the cops were there. The cops would like to patrol brownies in the brownies parking lot because there was a, often a lot of drunk women there. And they were, you know, young, good-looking cops in uniform. They'd like to just walk around. They'd walk the marina. They'd walk the deck. You know, just being seen. Probably more douchebag than anything, but kind of, I don't hate him for that. But it just so happened these cops were right there when I did this. And they freaking, you know, throw me throw on the table and yell them out, beat your ass, mother. Next thing you know, they're on me. So I get back the police car. They put me in the back of the police car. The, the back window's open, and the E kid is making a statement. And he's only like 10 feet from the car at a little a table on the deck and the cops going like so what happened what'd you see and you know i don't know exactly what he's writing i can't really hear that perfectly just enough noise where i can't hear it but i'm yelling i'm beating your ass man i'm beating your ass when i see you, bro I'm smashing your ass blah, blah, blah. now the other cop in the front seat said hey man please shut up man do me a favor shut the f up i said nah man this little punk pulled a gun on me before i said i'll beat his punk ass and you know i don't know if that's i should have said that but that was my reasoning i was like this little punk oh he's got a gun i'm like he did when he pulled it on me he had the balls to pull it on me he had a gun so now i'm gonna beat this punk ass every time i see him the rest of freaking life that's what i'm gonna do so i ain't saving it for nothing and i turned back to him i said pow i'm beating your ass you punk ass bitch go ahead and make a statement you little rat punk scared little bitch i'm yelling 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 finally the cop rolls the window up and i'm still yelling it as the window's going up i'm like lifting out of my seat yelling and the dude he's staring at me he's like you can see he's just really scared and shell-shocked he's just staring just but it ain't over so they take me to the city jail st Clair shores i go in there fingerprint me and whatever tell me i got a 500 warrant for um I think it was driving on suspended or something. Uh, Billy's dad was working. This is my boy, Billy, the best friend I had told you about, who was with me all summer. His dad was like a captain at the police station. And so he, his dad was working, and he came back. He said, what's going on, Al? You know, what's happened? 
I said, yeah, this is what happened, Mr. Usher. This little punk pulled a gun on me a couple hours ago, and I said, you know, I'm going to beat his ass when I see him. No, I happened to see him. I said, he ain't pressing charges, did he? And he's like, no, no, I ain't going to do that. That's what he said. We ain't going to pursue charges on you. We ain't going to do that. Like, so, you know, no charges. But I had told the girl, while they were arresting me, and he was making a statement, and I was getting ready to go to jail, I said to one of the cops, I said, man, can you go on the deck and find a girl in a black dress? Cute chick, you know, probably a solid nine about, you know, five foot five, 110 pound black dress. He's like, why? I'm like, dude, she's kind of my date. Can you just go tell her, come here? He's like, man, are you kidding me? I gotta go freaking hunt down your girl on this freaking 300 people on that deck. I said, bro, listen, I'm going to jail. I need someone to come get you. Can you just go find her? And the cop was cool. He said, all right, man, I'll go find her. And that's what I'm saying. I never had big trouble with cops. You know, so he goes and finds her and um, she comes up and she's like, what's going on? I said, listen, just, I don't even want to spend an hour in a city jail just because they're going to transfer me to the county jail and then I'll have to go through processing and I'll have to go through the, the intake and all that and I'll be there for hours and hours and hours with all these drunks and crackheads and I don't want to do that. Just buy me out now. I got the money at my house. I have the money. Go to my house. The money, My door is open. There's a pair of boots in my closet. You know, and I got money in there. I said, you know, I got seven, eight hundred bucks, whatever I had in there. I said, grab five hundred, come get me. So she she leaves. By the time I get fingerprinted, Billy's dad says, hey, you already made bail. I'm like, how? I mean, it's in, it's been only like 20 minutes or whatever. She needs to go all the way to Mount Clemens and back. She's like, I don't know, but she's paid it. She's out there. So I'm like, all right, cool. Grab my belongings. I said, cool. Went, went out there and I walked. Did you get so fast to Mount Clemens and back? She's like, no, nah, I just went to the ATM. And I just pulled the money out. You just give it to me later. I'm like, all right, bet. So, cool. After this, I went to Coney Island. Coney Island is the is the place to be where everybody goes after the club closes or at night or whatever, and it's basically the, the, the hot spot. Now I don't remember what time it was when I got there, but it was obviously you know after the event where I had punched a boy in the face. But I don't think it was it was closing time. Like normally at closing time, there's tons of freaking people. But I remember this night, go to Coney Island, we sit down, and we're eating, and maybe 10 minutes later, he comes walking in. The E dude comes walking in with his posse. And he freaking walks in, looks into Coney Island, and I just like, oh, yeah, I slapped my hand. Yeah, look who it is. I'm going to get another one. And he just flipped out because he thought I was in jail. He saw me leave, you know, an hour ago, get arrested and go to jail. And I was like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do now. And, you know, just trying to scare him. And he looked at me. Guys got all big, and he freaking he left. And uh, I, I went out there after him, like, punk to punk his ass out. But I'm like, it's your lucky night, bro. I don't feel like going back to jail again. So... I'll see you another night. Yeah, brownies was a trip, and I um, man, I got arrested for punching a guy in the face and got away with it, so kind of. I had a cousin in the suburbs, and he was buying Coke for like you know, 11, 1200 bucks an ounce. And he tells me that he's rocking it up. I'm like, bro, this kid was young too. He was like 20 years old. I'm like, you're selling an ounce a day of crack in the suburbs? I'm like, and in my mind, I'm like, shoot, I can get an ounce of Coke for 700 bucks in the hood. You know, good stuff. I know all kinds of guys. Because like I said, I was in the hood all the time. I was just dealing in the hood. I sold weed in the hood. So I figured if he buys it from me for 1100 bucks, I get it for seven. I get 400 bucks a day. It's a nice chunk of change. And, and that's what I did. And I even showed him how to rock it up. Because the first time that he, he got it, he, he didn't know how, he almost ruined it. He didn't know how to pull it back with the soda and the ice. And uh, he told me he's like only got a gram out of this. I'm like, don't move. I'll be there in a minute. Do not do nothing. And he re recovered like three quarters of an ounce. So I started dealing with these freaking dudes, right? And they were they were all right dudes, man. 
But um, I ended up going over to her house to get every day I'd do it. I don't know why I didn't buy more quality, more quantity weight. I just buy, you know, maybe a quarter key or something like that. I just buy an ounce at a time. Maybe I didn't have the money, whatever. And so one day I'm on my way over there. His name's Lorenzo, black dude. He like got googly eye like like Debo, and uh, big tall dude. They all love me, man. You know, they they when I first met them, I uh, <laughs> they had a go kart in the street, and I pulled up. Man, I, think I was had drinking a little bit. I had this big 44 Desert Eagle massive pistol, and they were having a party. And I was driving this go kart around the street doing donuts. And just to be funny, I pulled out my pistols like. Like boom, boom, and they were all ducking and running like some crazy ass white boy, but then they away. So they thought I was nuts. So anyway, I come down the street and I see the dude and Lorenzo and his brother Meech are on the porch of this house in the corner, man, coming off Chalmers. This is the ghetto. This is um, Glenwood and Chalmers, if anyone from Detroit knows. This is the hood. So I see him, I'm like, oh, cool. I pull over, and a Mustang, I pull over, and I jump out of the car, and I'm like, yo, Lo, what's up? You know, and, and the dude says, Hey man, take your bitch ass back across the street, man. Hold up, bro. You don't even know me, bro. You know what I'm saying? This is my boys. We're good, man. He's like, man, I don't give a F about your bitch ass. Take your bitch ass back in your car. And Lorenzo was telling him, hey man, nah, this one, this this dude's cool, man. You know, that's my boy, man. Don't worry about him. And he's telling Lorenzo, F him, F that white boy. So Lorenzo's like holding him back a little bit. And I say, let him come, Lo. Let him come. You know what I'm saying? Teach him a lesson today. So he comes walking towards me. And, and Lorenzo says, man, I'm telling you, bro, that ain't the one. That white boy is going to put you in the EMS. I said it me. I'll never forget it. And, and so he's got a bottle. And he starts circling around me. Like, what you going to do? You know, I get, I'm like, what's up? What you want to do? I said, that bottle ain't going to do nothing but piss me off, bro. I said, that ain't nothing. He's circling and circling. And I'm like, he's a vulture. And I'm just red. You know, and he's like, what's that? What's up? What's up? And he's flinching. And then he's like, what's up? Boom. And he goes to throw the bottle, trying to hit me in the face. But I duck it and it hits me in the shoulder, like my clavicle, and, and bounces off and breaks in the street. It, it actually hurt like hell. I bruised the bone, man. It was hurt for a while. But so as soon as he, I was like, bang, as soon as he threw it, I mean, I was like, I just drilled his ass right here, just knocked him out. Good, you know, knockout shot, boom, he goes straight down. His boys were on the porch, this is just like, damn, this white boy just knocked his ass out. Dude's sleeping. But then, for whatever dumbass reason, I felt like I needed to prove something more. So I like jumped on top of him, was like, bah, 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 bah. I just wrecked him up, you know, smashed his face up pretty bad. And then Lowe's like, all right, all right, gonna get out of here, get out of here, man. I'm like, I'll be back later. So dude goes get stitched up. I went down later to Lorenzo's house. And I pull up and I hit the horn, beep, beep, and he usually just come right out. His boy Pat, RIP, he died in a car accident in a high-speed chase. He comes out, he's like, man, what's up, Gunner man? Man, you shouldn't have done that, what you did. And I'm like, done what? You know, what you did. I'm like, why? I mean, he, well, he you know, I'm, you know, I'm not gonna stand there and let him pump my ass out like a little bitch, man. He disrespected me. He wants to try to hit me in the bottle, man. He gets what he got. And they're like, nah, man, you don't know him like that, man. Dude's crazy. We don't even mess with him. That's exactly what he said. Dude's crazy, man. He, we don't even mess with him. He's bad business. So I was leaning against the front of my car with my back to the front, and Pat is right here, and I'm talking, you know, like, well, whatever, dude. And out of the blue, I just feel, boom! I get cracked in the back of the head. Bam! And it hits me so hard, I catch myself in the car because it spun me around. Bam! And I see a baseball bat, the end of it, the broken wood Louisville, bouncing down the street. I'll never forget the sound of it. Cling, 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 the sound of wood bouncing down the street. Somebody just tried to kill me with a bat. And crack, luckily I got a hard head. 
boom. And then in my mind at that moment, I was like, this is life or death right now. So I kind of spun around, grabbed him by the throat, and I was like, and I just tackled him and I lost him. So I got on top of him and I just got on top of him with both my hands. I didn't even hit him at first. I just grabbed him. After you tried to kill me, smashing his head off the ground. And um, he's just gone, you know, got my wrist, like, trying to get me to let go. And I'm like, and I'm feeling like, I'm squeezing so hard. I feel like tendons and ligaments popping. Blood starts squirting out of his nose and his mouth. And it was raw, man. Hard. Man, you had strong grip. I had a strong grip. I was in shape. Imagine squeezing somebody by the throat as hard as you can. That's what I was doing. Smashing him out the concrete. He was like, I'm dying. So his boys, they start uh, kicking me. And I don't even know where these clues came from. Apparently, they were in the abandoned house that was next door to Lowe's house and waiting for me. They were in an abandoned house. Well, they snuck around from behind somehow, and I didn't see them. That's how he got me in the back of the head with a bat. So I'm on top of this dude trying to choke him out with everything I got. His boy starts freaking kicking me. Get off, get off. Get off. Kicking me. One hits me with a bottle. Breaks the bottle of my face. And I got blood pouring out of my head because I've been split. So I don't, I'm not letting go of this dude, man. I'm trying to kill him. I'm definitely going to kill him. What I didn't know was one of them came right up, stabbed me, hit me with a knife, basically shanked it on an up level, tried to get my heart and missed. A miracle. I didn't notice that. What made me let go of the dude was the, a guy comes running over with a two by four, big freaking two by four. And I just see him, it was a long one, like six feet. So he's just like winding up and I see him and I'm top of this dude smashing him. And at the last second I see this two by four coming. And so I lunge forward. And right as I lunge forward, he came down across the back of my hamstring, which by the way, of all these injuries that I was sustained in this event, that hurt the most. Freaking, it tore my hamstring like off the bone. I mean, it was black and blue from my ankle to my ass for like a month. I could barely walk. I was limping around for a month. It got me, bam! And so, and then I jumped up and I ran. I ran right out of my shoes. I, I, I don't even remember where I left my shoes. Not. Ran through the backyard next to Lowe's, jumped the fence, because there was a bunch of them and I knew they were going to start trying to shoot me at any time. So. They chased me for like, like man, I don't know, a few houses, but I'm fast. And I was, you know, trying to save my life. So I'm just like whoosh, jumping fences. I was hurtling fences, no joke. Running and going whoosh, over them, not even touching them. Then in these backyards with freaking Rottweilers and pit bulls and crap, man, and pit bulls and Rottweilers, they're chasing me. <laughs> like trying to bite me as I'm running. And I ended up ducking and weaving, man, through the backyards for, I don't know, man, three or four blocks, five blocks. I get to a pile, I'm completely out of breath. I can't catch my, my wind. Didn't know I was stabbed though. And what happened, I end up hiding behind some garage. Now it's basically pitch dark out. And um, I hear a gunshot in the back. I'm, bah, bah. I don't know what that is. And so I'm, I'm like, damn, you know, they're looking for me. They're trying to kill me. And I'm just <gasps> drenched in blood, blood everywhere. I don't even know his blood, my blood, you know. I mean, I've been stabbed, hit in the head with a bat. I mean, I'm just a mess. And I remember, I see my car drive by. And like a dummy, I remember, I left my keys in the car. Like a dumbass. So now I'm thinking, they're driving around in my car looking for me to kill me. But it wasn't that. Lorenzo came out with his gun, shot in the air, bat, bat, that's what that was, and like ran him off. And then got in my car, was driving around looking for me. Lorenzo was, good dude. 
And um, but I didn't know that. I just saw my car go by. So I'm like, what the hell? And, they, and the dudes did. They did smash the back window out of my car, and they were gonna set it on fire. They had gasoline. But uh, that's when Lowe came out and so back up. And they're like, why are you sticking up for that bitch-ass white boy? And Lowe was like, that white boy is my boy. Back up, you know, and fired a couple shots, warning shots. So that was cool. He was a G. And he took my car and he moved it. He took it all the way over to his grandmother's house in another neighborhood and, like, stashed it so they couldn't get to it, whatever. But he didn't know where I was. So I was, you know, in the side of this garage trying to catch my breath. And I remember saying to myself, a friend of mine had been killed recently. He got beat up at a party really bad. They smashed him and they took a, one of those big porcelain flower pots and crushed it over his head and then basically left him for dead. And he crawled into like this field next to a, you know, an abandoned house or something in the hood. And I just remember thinking to myself at the funeral and stuff going, damn man, I mean, what? I wonder what was going through his mind. Like, like, what was this dude thinking when he was dying? Like, what did it feel like? I mean, you're just bleeding out, smashed, you know it's over. I, I couldn't, I was trying to imagine. And then suddenly, here I am. It happened to me. So I was like, no, I'm not letting this happen. No way. I remember thinking of my girlfriend. I'm like, I don't want my girlfriend to get that call. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to let this happen. So I jumped up, and I jumped another block over, and I'm walking down the street, and it's hot as hell. It's like 10 o'clock at night. I got no shoes on, no shirt, bleeding everywhere, and um, I just thirsty, man. I just wanted some water, so I saw this spigot on the side of some house. This is the hood, man. I mean, looks like this is the worst neighborhood in Detroit. And so I walk over to the spigot, and I'm trying to get it to work. It wouldn't work, and I'm trying to fast with it. And I hear some lady yell across the street, hey, what you doing by my house? Get away from my house. And she comes running over. I'm like, I'm oh, sorry, man, man. I just wanted some water. And then she looked at me. She said, this, by the way, I believe this lady was an angel. I'm not joking, and I'll tell you why. She ran over and said, oh my God, what happened to you? You get in a car accident? I said, no, I just got jumped. She's like, come on, baby, come up, come on, come on. She walks me up onto her porch, sits me in a chair. At this point, man, I have much left in me. She sits me on a chair, comes out with a nice clean white towel and a glass of like ice water, hands it to me. I, I put, she said, put the towel over your head. I didn't even know the stab, because blood was just leaking. She said, put that over there. Drink this water. So I slammed this water, and then I asked her. The last thing I remember is like saying, "Can I have another glass of water? I'm really thirsty." And then so she brings it, and then the next thing I remember, the EMS were there, but the EMS could have taken an hour. It's Detroit, East Side of Detroit. I mean, it literally could have been an hour. I don't know if it was five minutes or an hour, but all of a sudden they're there waking me up, and then they're trying to put me on a stretcher, and they wanted to strap me to the stretcher. And I said, "No, nah, man, I'm good. I don't want to be on a stretcher. I have no idea why I didn't want to be on a stretcher." But I was just like, I don't want to be on a stretcher. And so they're like, well, you've had major head trauma. You've had neck trauma. You need to be on a... No. They're like, all right. So I sit in the back of this ambulance. Takes me to the hospital. Um, doctor, a doctor named Dr. Wheaton, who was um, a resident, new doctor. Had, um, I'll never forget him. He came in there and he said, your head, in order to fix it so you don't have a big dent in your head because of muscles and your eye sags and all that crap, I have to do plastic surgery. I have to sew the muscles together. He's like, but you have to give me your consent because I'm not certified to do that. He's like, I'm not that type of doctor. I'm still new, whatever. So if you give me, I said, yeah, man, doc, do what you got to do. And so he did. And he freaking stitched up, stitched up, they cleaned me up, had to go inside, stitched my, my lung up, just nicked it, not bad. And then, I mean, I have a huge scar. But anyway, 
they wanted me to spend a night for observation and I was like, no way, I'm not spending a night in the hospital. I just want to go and take a bath. My freaking hamstring hurt, man, where I got smashed with a two by four. I'm like, I gotta get home and take a bath. So they called my girl. I said, will you call my girl to come to get me? And they're like, yeah. Well, when they called her, legally, they couldn't say what was wrong with me. All they could say is I was in the emergency room and something had happened. They couldn't say if I was, you know, just that I'm alive. That's it. Which is some bull crap. You know, why would you, you know, call the girlfriend and tell her, you know, he's all right. You know, and they say he's in an emergency. He had a, a, an event and he's still alive. That's all I can say. So she gets there and I hear her coming freaking from down the hall and around two corners screaming because they wouldn't let her back there. And she is freaking running. A little four foot 11 girl running from these like orderlies who are chasing her. Man, man, you can't go back there. Where is he? And she comes cr crashing through the back, and then I see her. She sees me there. I'm like, relax, I'm fine. Where am I? She ran over and crying. She's like, all right. And then they let her stay. But um, took me home and um, took a bath, and that's that. So where I'm going with the story is, like, Detroit's kind of like the Wild West, man. I mean, there's gunplay is real. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to have to wrap it up. Part two in conclusion. Damn. I thought there was another part. <laughs> I'm so excited. I mean, you keep, it's like watching The Sopranos, you know, and you cut us off. There's going to be a part three. There might be a part four and five if this keeps on because uh, I keep getting more stuff. It'll turn out he was in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do that. Dude, nothing, nothing would shock me. As a matter of fact, I'm watching uh, like a, a Fox News special on Jimmy Hoffa. Just since it's Detroit related, right? I kind of copy the link and send it to Gunner, and uh, he texts me right back. He goes, "Yeah, I know, I'm on it." I'm like, "What?" And then, sure enough, as I'm watching it, he pops up. Him and Scott Bernstein, they're on it. I mean, and they're on it a lot. <laughs> it's like he's like, "Where's Waldo?" Or he's Where's like, Gunner? he's like the gangster Peyton Manning when it comes to media. He's showing up on I know. everything. So it was pretty funny that way. Uh, speaking of media sensations. Orlando Spado is going to be at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas yes. on May 11th, as it's planned out yes. now. So uh, it's a little far out to promise to promise we're going to be there, but we are going to make every effort awesome. to be there. And Ree's going to be oh, yeah. in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks, right? Uh, next week, going for my... Tw we were married out there 25 years ago tomorrow, so we are going to go out and not renew our wedding vows, but... No, have a good time without our children. And I'll tell you what, if you can spot Ree in Las Vegas next week, <laughs> I will give you an autographed copy of Ori Spado's book if you slap her on the back of the head <laughs> when she's pulling the slot. Yeah, that's where she'll be. She'll be at the slot. The There's got to be video. It's been a long night. I want to go. But one more thing I got to throw in. Uh, I got a buddy on Instagram named Bill Stacks. He started a new show. And he actually got uh, Anthony Russo. Mm. A real nice interview nice. with him. Hootie to his friends. I have to call him Mr. Russo, <laughs> but uh, it was a real good show. And uh, he's got a lot of heavy hitters coming up and stuff. So you can catch him on YouTube. Also, if you like Gunner as much as we do, he's got like 101 videos on YouTube that are just everywhere from exciting to hysterical. He does political commentary and he's got a clothing line called Our Thing. So uh, check that out. Who knew? Yeah. Who so knew? it doesn't surprise <laughs> you. So anyway, go visit all of Gunner's stuff if you're uh, sitting there bitching about me not getting the next episode out fast enough. <laughs> there, there's stuff out there that'll entertain you. That's it for tonight. All right. Be safe and God bless you.
Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin MacLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.